Welcome to another episode of Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. I'm Gran Otsky. And I'm Bascom Guffin. We've been away for a little while, but we think the conversation we have for you is worth the wait. A woman makes a scene on the floor of a bank just to be able to make a withdrawal. An Argentine Navy frigate is seized at an African port when American investors try to collect their debts. A couple of brothers strap thousands of dollars in cash to their bodies in order to carry it across the city of Buenos Aires. In my conversation with him, Nicholas Devella tells us what all of these have to do with each other. Dr. Devella is a postgraduate fellow at the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's the author of the essay, Ecologies of Investment, Crisis Histories, and Brick Futures in Argentina, which appears in the February issue of Cultural Anthropology. Welcome, Nick. Hi, Bascom. Maybe we can start off by uh, talking a little bit about how you actually came to uh, this particular subject. Sure. Um, as happens with a lot of anthropologists, I guess the, the subject also came to me. I was, um, was living in Buenos Aires uh, doing preliminary fieldwork on a different project during the summers of 2005 and 2006. And um, those were years in which the construction boom had become uh, a sort of incredibly palpable sort of feature. I was living in a neighborhood called Cabachito, and that was one of the epicenters of, of a construction boom that uh, sort of provoked some curiosity in me because Argentina had sort of recently gone through an economic crisis in 2001 and 2002. And, and so I was, I was curious about where this spate of... Uh, of construction was coming from, um, started to look into it and, and began to learn about sort of shifts in Argentine savings practices and movement of people's monies um, out of banks and into bricks, they called it. Okay. Um, so that was sort of one angle. And then at the same time, uh, in 2006, neighborhood residents uh, had also begun to protest the ways that the ways that new constructions were changing the physiognomy of, of neighborhood life in several neighborhoods throughout the city, um, particularly a, a problem with tall buildings in historically low-rise neighborhoods. Um, and so there was a sort of, I guess, a, a set of interrelated but distinct political movements in different neighborhoods throughout the city to, to get the urban planning code changed. And they had sort of began winning some, some victories and, and making headlines uh, in 2006. And then um, at the same time, I, by sort of matter of happenstance, was, was living with an architect friend and was, was looking through his, um, his magazines one day. And, and he had, um, you know, this sort of, I've, I have a background in the growth and structure of cities uh, major from, from Haverford and Bryn Mawr College. So I, I have a sort of interest in urban design and so there was a or there was an interview with uh, a group of architects, a sort of round table in this journal in which Argentine architects working in Buenos Aires were describing their sort of um, the new world in which they were they were doing work uh, in the years following the crisis uh, so basically they many architects had been out of work in the years following the crisis and began gathering together groups of small investors to build buildings. Um, and the round table was a sort of reflection on the ways that that impacted upon the work that architects do. 
Um, and so that was how I put together my project. So I worked with real estate investors and market analysts, uh, architects, and groups of neighborhood residents um, who all had sort of different sets of interests in buildings. And, and so for this particular article, you it seems like you really focused in um, on some of the, the people who were actually buying these apartments and sort of what was motivating them. Exactly. I was really interested in in asking the question here, the way that it relates to the rest of my research is to sort of ask, you know, in what was the sort of broader habitat in which buildings were existing in the lives of the people who were buying apartments. So to sort of trace out the relationships within their sets of practice. So how did real estate compare with other possible sorts of investment that these people could have made? Right. So, so for people who aren't really familiar with it, could you give a brief, um, maybe a sort of a brief history of the economic crisis that you were most concerned with for this ethnography? So at the end of the 1980s, um, a period of hyperinflation, uh, and, and there were various efforts to sort of deal with that. Um, and the roots of this crisis go back to those efforts in the early 1990s. And so in the early 1990s, the Argentine government took a sort of drastic step of pegging the Argentine peso to the U.S. dollar at a ratio of one to one. So this epic in Argentina, it lasted for 10 years from um, early 1990s to 2001. So pegging the, uh, the Argentine peso to the U.S. dollar basically means that it, 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 it basically follows the dollar's value wherever the, the, the dollar goes. Correct. It means it means that uh, yes, that that relative to the dollar, the peso will remain uh, at a constant value um, in exchanges. That relationship uh, by the end of the 1990s, and specifically at the end of 2001, had become unsustainable. So during the entire decade of the 1990s, Argentines. Um, sort of had dollar-denominated bank accounts and dollar-denominated, um, could buy dollar-denominated CDs, had dollar-denominated loans, or if they weren't denominated in dollars, they were denominated uh, like in pesos that were convertible to dollars uh, at a ratio of one-to-one. One. So during 10 years, this was Argentine's relationship with their money. Okay. Um, it, this... Um, sort of broad recession at the end of the 1990s sparked by many things, neoliberal policies, but also the tequila crisis in Mexico, or, or that started in Mexico and really had, you know, strong effects throughout the region. Um, so for, for many reasons, Argentina became unable to sort of generate the kinds of um, economic growth that could sustain that kind of an exchange rate. And they eventually became unable to both sort of pay their foreign lenders and at the same time meet their conversion obligations to local depositors. So uh, 2001, the IMF uh, decided that it would issue no further loans to Argentina. And those loans uh, had become sort of the only way, as with many states in the region, those loans had become the only way that um, Argentina could continue meeting its debt obligations was through taking out more loans. When the IMF sort of saw that default was imminent, or decided that default was imminent, let's say, um, they they decided to no longer give loans to Argentina. 
and sort of forced, forced Argentina to default on its foreign debts. Um, in this context, Argentina was facing a large-scale run on the banks because people wanted to get their pesos out of the banks as much, you know, as fast as they could in order to be able to save their money in a more stable currency, right? So that, so that if anything did happen, the government was sort of promising up and down that, you know, convertibility was there to stay and that, that nothing was going to waver their commitment to dollar peso convertibility to, to this fixed exchange rate. But uh, people began to panic and sort of as early as May of 2001, you start seeing money sort of hemorrhaging out of the Argentine banking system. In December, the government institutes a series of restrictions on how much money you can take out of your bank account uh, called the Coralito, which is called the Little Corral or the Crib. Okay. And it sort of allowed people to only take out $200 a month. Uh, I'm sorry, $200 a week. And the rest of your money sort of sat in the bank. They hadn't unpegged the peso from the dollar yet, but everyone was afraid that this was going to happen. And several weeks later, that is what happened. Okay. Um, once they floated the currency, then um, people's savings dropped in, but you know, people's savings were now converted into a devalued peso and lost about three quarters of their value, um, basically overnight as the peso when the, once the peso was floated. Right. So right. So it was just to sort of summarize for that. I don't know. Yeah. If Sure. But this, so there was a sort of complex series of events, but as as um, a sort of broad scale, um, you know, recession that had been happening for years in Argentina began to make it difficult for the country to pay its debts. Um, the IMF sort of and a lot of people begin to sort of see that the country is in economic trouble. There begins to be sort of you know crisis of faith, and people begin taking their money out of the banking system. And so this is all happening, uh, a, a lot of this is happening from, from the time of the Coralito to the time of the unpegging is happening between, you know, December and February, uh, or December and January of 2001, 2002. So it all happens fairly quickly, as I guess these things often do. In, in, in the moment, it happened very quickly. In retrospect, you know, how early could you have seen signs from this was a kind of question that, you know, people ask themselves afterwards, right? Should we have known? Um, if you if you uh, a sort of congressional inquiry was done a year after the crisis uh, published you know several years later I think which was sort of looking at at trying to understand you know how much money was leaving the system how it was leaving who was moving it um, these kinds of questions were, were the super rich able to, able to get their money out faster than the middle class. Um, right. it, it, it was, you know, it's definitely as is often the case with these kinds of things. You know, normal investors are are the the last ones to sort of catch on. Um, and so, by the time by the time someone like uh, Mariella, who I talk about in my article, decides to get her money out, um, you know, it's really sort of. Um, it's, I mean, it wasn't too late for Mariella, but it was very close. Right. So um, why, why don't you tell me the story of Mariella? She, she's actually in a pretty interesting case, and she's actually sort of how you, how you start off this, um, this article. So, so Mariella was, you know, someone that I, I met because I was interested in talking to people who were thinking about buying apartments or who had bought apartments, and a, f a friend of mine introduced her to me, Mariella had bought an apartment sort of 
in the immediate aftermath of the crisis. Um, and so I went and asked her to tell me her story. And um, she told me this, you know, sort of adventurous story of, of, um, of her experience in escaping the Coralito, which was the embargo that um, the Argentine state put on bank withdrawals uh, right. in the immediate lead up to the crisis. So anyway, so Mariela went to the bank uh, one day. She decided to, that, you know, the sort of the news reports and everything around her, she had a pretty big hunch that, you know, there was going to be a problem um, and that maybe convertibility was going to fall apart. Or she, I mean, she wasn't entirely sure what was going to happen, but she knew that it would be, be best to um, get her money out of the bank. Right. So she went to the bank and there was a series of sort of bureaucratic obstacles that, you know, I don't think, I, I think Mariela suspected that there was sort of foul play on behalf of the bank. They, so they, she, got, she gets to the bank and they, uh, they say, we're sorry, ma'am, but your money's not here. Hmm. When she tries to withdraw it, and she says, they say, you know, you have to fill out this form and you can come back tomorrow and you can get your money. So she fills out the form and she goes back the next day and she tries to withdraw and then they say, no, ma'am, we're sorry, your, your money still isn't here. Uh, you know, and then the next day was a banking holiday, and then there was a three-day weekend, and, and Mariela is getting really nervous. And so then she goes back, and again, they tell her, you know, ma'am, look, you can get some of your money here, but the rest you have to go to the main, to the main branch office, you know, downtown. And she decides to throw a fit in the middle of the bank um, to make a scene, she said. So she starts screaming, uh, this is a fraud, I'm going from, you know, straight to the Consumer Protection Agency, I'm going to the, you know, uh, you, you're going to give me back my money, this I is where only I can I can only imagine other patrons there, like, with big wide eyes looking at her. Completely, I mean, I mean, it, I mean, it's this kind of, I'm not sure what the scene was like, um, if they were... You know, it's probably unlikely that most of them were unsuspecting, right? That this right. thing was going on. And yet it also hadn't escalated to the point yet where everyone in the bank is screaming, right? right. Um, so, I mean, if, if you watch um, Naomi Klein and Avi Lewis's documentary film, The Take, which is about recovered factories, um, okay. in the aftermath, they do a, a nice visual recap of the crisis. Okay. Um, so they... And and one of the things you see, I mean, you see people smashing at ATM machines with with pens and hammers. You see people kicking in, you know, bank branch windows, throwing, you know, throwing eggs or rocks at banks. I mean, there's a sort of a real, you know, reaction against the banks. I guess right. at this time there was a re there was sort of a, a, a really pronounced reaction. Right. Um, that so so in Mariella's story, this still hadn't happened. So, so anyway, she says, you're going to give me the money. And somehow that worked. So she went back the next day with her friend and a suitcase, and they brought her into a room, and she said the bank's accountant practically threw the money at her. <laughs> so, and, and she's, it sounds like she was one of the last people to get her money out that way. It was 10 days before the Coralito. So, so she was very close uh, to the end. So what it all eventually culminates in is a profound 
uh, public distrust in Argentine money? So there's two things going on. One of them is a profound distrust in Argentine money. That's been historic. Uh, the 1990s would be the sort of exception for that. Okay. Right? So in the 1970s, I mean, historic since the, the mid-1970s when sort of um, inflation became a sort of endemic problem in the Argentine economy. Right. Um, you know, money has, in sort of classic theory about money, uh, anthropological theories about money, there's a, there's a little rhyme, you know, in, in money matters functions for a medium, a measure, a standard, and a store. Okay. So money is is sort of the definition of modern money uh, is supposed to fulfill these four all these four functions. Uh, it's supposed to be a medium of exchange. You know, you can give it to somebody and they'll give you something else for it. Um, a measure of value. It helps you understand. You know, milk is worth three dollars and this cheese is worth eight dollars, and so it helps you understand relative value. Mm -hmm. Medium a measure a standard. Uh, of deferred payments, meaning I can tell you that I'll give you $10 next week, and next week if I give you $10, uh, it'll still be worth about $10 in a store, a store of value. Right. So this deferred payments and the store of value functions of money are both sort of temporally um, longer term than the, than the former two, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so several anthropologists, most notably Jane Geyer, but also Bill Maurer and um, and a, bu a bunch of people have sort of shown that, you know, money doesn't often fulfill all four of these, uh, you know, different, you know, that's not. Uh, so, so Argentines do use pesos for almost everything except saving. Um, so it's not like they have also completely abandoned the Argentine peso, but in terms of saving, they have no faith right. uh, in the long-term uh, value sort of stability of the value of the Argentine, of Argentine currency. Right. So that's sort of historical. Um, I mean, that's, that's sort of, you know, time horizon. Um, the, the distrust in banks is part of what really was consolidated um, with the crisis. The, the sort of inability of to people's lack of faith in banks as a good place to keep your money. Right. That was that was the sort of big shift following 2001, right? And that results, uh, at least in part, in um, in this phenomenon that you call uh, colchonismo, or maybe that Argentines yes. call colchonismo. <laughs> they did right. It's known as as colchonismo. I mean, I didn't invent the term, <laughs> but um, so colchonismo, mattressism, is how you would translate it. It means that people keep money under their mattress, um, behind false walls. Uh, in the freezer, buried in their backyard. I spoke with people. Uh, a lot of people do keep them in safety deposit boxes in banks. Okay. Um, so, th so that's sort of seen as a, a not as so. So, if if you're extra suspicious, you don't even do that, and you bury it in your backyard, right? Or you keep it in your house. Um, so, this phenomenon of of saving in dollars has, you know. A much longer history. It's what people have done, you know, since at least the 1960s, 70s. Right. Um, but it's interesting that I mean, it's it's such a widespread phenomenon that there's actually a term for it that everybody knows. It's not even just a saying, like saving your money under a mattress. It's like a word, <laughs> a term, right? Right, right, right. I mean, it's one of those funny things in that 
they wouldn't necessarily name it because it's also very obvious to them. Uh, You know, when I asked Mariella if she saved her money in the bank, when I did the interview with her, it was 2009 or 10, um, and she just started laughing. Uh, you know, <laughs> she, she she leaned back in her chair, and it was this, <laughs> you know, the question itself was funny. Um, no, not at all, right? I, she had not regained her faith in banks. She did not save her money in a bank. Um, right. And so, so, so they don't even have to say, you know, I practice Golchoni. No, they just say, you know, oh, my savings, you right. know. Um. <laughs> so this is um, so this colchonismo um, is is part of what you call um, Argentina's ecology of investments. Can you sort of explain what you mean by ecology of investments? Sure. So we can talk more about sort of what I use the term to do in the article um, later. But to start out with, um, just to take the word investment, which seems like the more obvious or natural of the two words. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, investments aren't just things that are out there in the world, like gold and dollars, stocks and real estate. Uh, investment also describes a relationship that we have with those things, right? So you can say that you're invested, you know, in a relationship or that you're invested in someone's future. So it's a relationship. It can be a relationship with people, but it can also be a relationship with objects. Sure. I mean, there's one sense in which we use investment to talk about, oh, it's my investment and, you know, I'm invested in the stock market. But what I sort of part of the project of the article was to really attend closely to this double nature of of what it means to invest, right? That an investment is also a relationship. Okay. Um, And so on the one hand, you'd have a sort of diverse set of possible things in which you can invest, gold, pesos, dollars. Um, and then there are also people with, you know, very different sorts of investments in those things. So, in, so ecology was a word that um, I used to help focus on this relational aspect of investments. So the relationship between dollars and bricks, for instance, would be one thing. But then also the ways that people pay attention to, uh, the, you know, or the particular set of relationships in which dollars are caught up okay. uh, and entangled or that bricks are. So what are some of those relationships, would you say? So, sure. So, so for instance, um, one of the arguments in the, in the paper is that uh, what, one of the things that I describe is a sort of hist- historically special relationship between U.S. dollars and real estate or bricks in Argentina. Um, U.S. dollars, as I mentioned, um, have a his, sort of historic uh, role as the me- a medium of savings for people in Argentina. Um, but also, since the um, 1970s, real estate has also been denominated in U.S. dollars. Um, so dollars have two sort of special functions in Argentina, one of which is saving, and one of which is the purchase of real estate. Okay. Um, so how does so, that, how does that how does that work with real estate? How is real estate denominated in dollars when other things might not be? It's surprisingly simple. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it's surprisingly simple and complex. You know, it's it's one of these. It's like you know, it's a cultural thing. People do not accept pesos for um, 
real estate. It's just a, a collective practice whereby if I want to sell an apartment, I insist on receiving payment in U.S. dollars, and it is expected that people will uh, will pay me U.S. dollars for my apartment. Okay, and so that so could this, mean this, suitcases of dollars, or that could mean dollar-denominated checks or whatever? It means suitcases of dollars. Okay. General. When you decide to move $70,000 or $60,000 across town, you face a question about how to best do it um, without getting robbed. Um, right. So, th th so this is what you have to do then when you're transferring from safety deposit to safety deposit box. Uh, so my, this guy I knew and his brother, and they decided that the safest thing to do was not to get into a taxi cab or anything, but to take the subway. So they taped the, you know, the money to their, to their bodies, and they rode across the subway across town to the bank of the person uh, where they were doing the transaction, and they, um, and they both sat down in a reserved room and uh, counted out the money, and uh, they wrote down the serial numbers of all of the bills that they had used in order to make sure that, uh, so that later on, if any of them had become had been determined to be counterfeit, uh, they would have sort of proof that that it was from that transaction. Okay. So there's a so it's a it's cash dollars. Often, I think at other moments or or in other certain situations, they the, they will do bank transfers. Um, but right. uh, it's historically specific relationship between the dollar and the brick in Argentina is sort of part of what I'm trying to get at with the idea of, of ecologies, right? That the dollar and the brick have a certain kind of relationship there in which decisions made about one or the other are sort of closely tied, that, that they're closely tied together. And that they, so they um, affect each other. They have, I mean, it's not even just necessary. Yes, they do affect each other. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm trying to think of the best way to, to sort of explain this. So, so I used ecology in the article to sort of mark several different things. One of them was this special relationship between the dollar and the brick. Okay. Um, but then also that, you know, whenever we think about, um, you know, to think about the dollar and people's capacity to save in dollars, you have to also think about the, the dollar's relationship with the peso, for instance. And then about, so how many, you know, how do people get dollars? How many pesos does it take? what class of people can access them and what class can't, right? So, right. so the, the sort of relationship, but also a certain attunement to what makes dollars then different than other things. I mean, why the dollar and not the peso uh, is a sort of relate. It's not necessarily a question of what's the relationship between the dollar and the peso, but given that I have these two things, you know, which one do I need to buy milk tomorrow? Which one do I need to save for something in 10 years? Which one can I use to buy an apartment? Right. Uh, so ecology then was a word to help me understand this sort of relational aspect um, of investments. It's a word that's about describing an emergent web of relations uh, among constitutive and constituting parts is the way that Tim Choi described it. Okay. So it's, it's, it, this is a, it's a sort of classic observation. This is, it's both hard to think at first and then it's also very simple because it's actually a version of the relation as it was described in the history of anthropology and kinship by people like Marilyn Strathern. So like relations aren't just connections between two pre-existing things. 
Um, <clears throat> but the connections between things themselves change, uh, or the, the things themselves change in as their connections change. So a man becomes a father relative to his son. He's a husband relative to his wife. He's an uncle relative to a nephew. Right. Uh, so he, as a person, changes depending on the relational context of which he's a part. Um, and so in that sense, ecology is sort of about a sort of diversity of relations um, and a, a sort of relational web within which things get caught up. So in Argentina, it's about a dollar in a context in which there's a history of inflation of the national currency that makes that currency impossible to save in. So the dollar then becomes the medium of savings. And then because the dollar is a medium of savings with sort of long-term value, it becomes the currency within which large purchases like real estate are conducted. Um, mm -hmm. And then real estate becomes a way to think about your savings because real estate then holds value in a way that the dollar does rather than in a way that the peso does. Okay. So it's this sort of string of this, this kind of a relational web between different investments that is what I'm trying to get at with the ecology okay. uh, concept. And then banks become part of that and the banks and the crisis, the, the importance of cash rather than bank deposits. That's also why real estate became special, particularly in the aftermath of 2001, because people, you know, I mean, in another context, people could easily, you, you could imagine that people would deposit their money in a bank and it would pay X interest. And as long as that interest outpaces inflation, then, then that's another reasonable way to save. But because people don't save in banks in Argentina, that's not a reasonable way to save. Uh, and so, so that the the sort of banking deposit versus cash economy savings question is also part of this this ecology. And and it sounds like the um, at one point the ecology of let's say currencies in Argentina was really actually was about more than just the dollar and the peso even. So I just sort of want to go back to. Um, to a, a story that you tell in the article about this naval frigate Libertad, Libertad, yeah, um, and what that says about um, you know these networks of investment or these ecologies of investment that you know sort of Argentina's entangled is caught up in. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Libertad was a a sort of curious incident that didn't happen during my fieldwork. It happened in the last couple of years, um, but. But that I felt was really instructive in terms of being the kind of event that Argentines have learned to think with um, and think about. Um, so the, the the story is that in an Argentine naval frigate, it it's a historic it's a it's actually a historic boat. It's not you know doesn't have actual you know battle uses now. It's a, a sort of um, his, uh, a history piece, uh, okay. and but members of the Argentine Navy were doing, uh, you know, a long-term training voyage, and the ship docked in in Ghana and um, was sort of held at port by a Ghanaian court with the logic that Argentina had defaulted on its debt to uh, Wall Street hedge fund. NML Capital and Aurelius Capital are two hedge funds that invest in distressed sovereign debt 
um, which means they buy up uh, defaulted debt from people at bargain basement prices and then uh, attempt to recover the face value of that debt through litigation. Okay. Uh, so in Argentina, they're called vulture funds. Okay. Um, these funds then, uh, the American bill, they're sort of funded by American uh, money often. They're, they're, so there's a, the, the head of NML is this American billionaire, Paul Singer. Uh, they're registered in the Cayman Islands because it's fiscal paradise. Uh, and they litigate in the Southern District of New York, which is where the, for because of Wall Street and the Stock Exchange. Right. So they've been litigating against Argentina for, for years and, uh, it's, you know, since 2001 to try and recover. Uh, well, they, they actually probably haven't been, I'm not sure at what point they purchased um, the distressed debt, but they at some point joined um, Argentina, you know, default is is the kind of thing that makes it sound like they never have to pay it back. But what it is is it's a restructuring of debt. Right. Typically, um, defaulted debt ends up getting paid back at about fifty percent of the face value. Argentina managed to uh, restructure more than ninety percent of its debt, paying back about thirty percent of the face value of its debt. Uh, so thirty cents on the dollar. Right. Of debt, seven um, percent of 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 Argentine debt was not restructured because those people refused to enter into a restructuring agreement with Argentina and ins instead insist on on full repayment. Um, so the vulture funds come in. So this is part of the ecology in which Argentine sovereign debt exists, right? So then right. Um, these vulture funds come in and buy some of buy up that distressed debt from some of these people who maybe get tired of litigating and decide that they're you know not going to recover their money and uh and then bring bring suit uh so they join in in that lawsuit argentina has been careful about where it keeps its money in international exchanges the judges of the southern district of new york cannot um, embargo too much of Argentina's funds in the in this court case, right? Okay. So there's there's questions there going on, but but somehow this this the hedge fund got this Ghanaian court to uh, impound this boat, basically. So you um, have a U.S. firm uh, that is it's a Cayman Island right. Cayman Island firm is suing. Uh, in part through the Southern District Court of the United States, petition, successfully petitioning Ghana to hold an Argentine frigate to, to, to try to force repayment of debt. Well, it's, I mean, it's unclear what they really <clears throat> thought was going to happen with this. I mean, the, the hedge fund didn't want the frigate. Sure. And, and I'm not sure if they really thought that they could keep it. I'm not, it's, it's unclear what the sort of real goals were, but, but what's, what was striking about it was, right, this sudden and for me, very strange appearance of this frigate in the middle of this sort of debate about um, about debt and, and, a, and a court case that was. Ha I mean, it's strange enough that Argentina has to convince a U.S. district court judge about the validity of its default. It's it's really shocking, actually, that uh, you know. These seven percent of holdouts, because if the holdouts end up winning their court case, uh. 
against Argentina for uh, trying to restructure its debt. I mean, they would win on the argument that Argentina has to pay back all of its debt. And that opens the door for a bunch of other lawsuits and puts sort of the, the entire Argentine uh, post-crisis re debt restructuring in question, right? right. It's unclear so what it's, would happen. Instead of 30 cents on the dollar, it's possible that it would have to be a dollar on the dollar that they would have to pay back. That's what they're, I mean, that's what the hedge fund is looking for. And the worry is that if the hedge fund gets it, who else could then get it? Right. And the strange thing here, the really strange thing is that this happens in a, a New York court, right? Or it's, at least it feels strange to me. Um, sure. You know, or you at least it's something that, that should make us very aware of sort of what kinds of, what kinds of, you know, the ecologies in which these things are caught up, right? The, right. the, the set of relations that, that constitute sovereign debt. And um, so, so that's strange enough already. And then you throw in the small frigate doing, you know, exercises and, you know, in a, a sort of sailing trip through up the coast of Africa. And um, thinking about that makes you think about the network of relationships surrounding Argentine sovereign debt. Right. And how, you know, how do you get from one to the other, right? How do you get from, you know, this vulture fund, this, this, this vulture fund to Ghana and the frigate? Uh, and so what, like, what does that network look like? How do they, how do they do that? Beyond the answer is the fact that these kinds of things help you learn how to think in a way that traces connection, right? right. That's sort of the point that I was leveraging it to make. Um, in in the article was that you know you are very careful the, the two things that I said um, ecology of investments are both um, you know people learn to be very careful about equivalence because you never know how long equivalence will last so a peso is equivalent to a dollar during the 90s that can break down um, a dollar that is deposited in your bank account is not always equivalent to a dollar in a paper bill in your hand, right? Um, because they can embargo your bank account. Right. Um, th there are certain infrastructural conditions in which equivalency works, and, but it's always a condition of those infrastructures. And so Argentines have learned to be very careful about attributing equivalence. But then with the frigate, I was interested in that they've also learned to be promiscuous with seeing possible connections because. Mm one doesn't really know what connections might make itself relevant. Mm -hmm. And one has to be very open to the fact that, um, you know, unexpected things can happen. And, and I think that that's a sensibility that, that Argenti Argentines are, are ready for new things to enter into the ecology that they are unable to foresee. And the, so the frigate was a sort of quick tale that, that kind of, um, you know, marked that, the promiscuity of potential relation, the, the, the way that, or not the promiscuity of relations, but the, the, the way that, that you have to be open to the fact that connections, um, new forms of connection are always possible and they can be risky and they can be dangerous and, and you don't always know what kinds of connections are going to make themselves relevant at certain times. In this case, it was a frigate. And the fact that you can be tied into these ecologies at a variety of scales this sort of drama going on with this frigate um, that depending on the outcome of this 
of, of these court cases, it could have a very real effect on the individual investors in Argentina, right? Yes, the court cases definitely could. I'm not sure that the frigate could, but <laughs> but uh, the frigate is caught up in this. But the frigate, thing so, I mean, a, someone thought it was worth something, right? And it can uh, and it can become a, and and that becomes a, a, a sort of a key item in a story that's being told about the ecologies that Argentina's uh, economy is caught up in. Yes. Right. Um, and 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 so it's it's this piece of a story. Uh, and, and one of the things that you say in your article is that stories make good investments. Uh-huh. Right. So there's a, yeah, there's a double entendre there, um, which is that stories uh, not only are, are good things to invest in, in the sense that stories are it, telling stories is a way to invest in history. Um, and that therefore people are invested in economic past through the stories that they tell, but also in the other sense that telling these stories can make investments good. And that's what I meant earlier when we spoke about, um, you know, that one of the reasons real estate has continued to be a good investment in Argentina is that a lot of people are invested in it. And so in that sense, stories told about uh, the value of bricks uh, help make bricks literally also a good investment in the sense that uh, they've maintained their value. Right, and um, I guess you could add potentially add another uh, another meaning, which is that um, some stories might actually sort of teach you ways to make better investments within a particular sort of ecology, if you will. Excellent. Yeah, 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 yeah. They at least teach you how to be sensitive to what you need to be sensitive to. Right. So right. So they'll never, they'll never be necessarily prescriptive, right? Right. Um, I mean, even even the observation bricks are a good investment is a sort of contingent statement that depends on you know the the particular moment. Um, so for for instance, one, I mean, one of the things that we haven't really talked about yet that was very important to many Argentines is that. Uh, apartments are not entangled with banks today, right? Apartment purchases are not held in, uh, people don't, people aren't buying apartments with mortgages. Right. I mean, uh, right, and that, you have... disen- that disentanglement with banks is one of the things that people value in real estate, actually. Okay. Right. Because you have these guys who are strapping money to themselves to take over to pay $60,000 in cash for an apartment. So there's no bank involved in that. There's no mortgage, but for the, for many of them, it makes them feel better that this is an actual, um, you know, that this isn't just a speculative bubble in real estate because it's it's people's real money. They say. Thanks very much, Nicholas Devella, for spending time with me today uh, to talk about your article. Thank you, Bascom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anthropod. You can find Nicholas Devella's essay, Ecologies of Investment, Crisis Histories and Brick Futures in Argentina, in the February issue of Cultural Anthropology at colanth.org. Essays in this and future issues are open access and free to read and download. Before we go, we'd like to mention two things you can do to help this podcast out. First off, we have a brief survey that we hope will help us get to know you all better. 
We have thousands of listeners, and we want to hear who you are, what you've liked, and the things you'd like to see us cover. You can reach the survey at colanth.org slash fieldsites slash 531. That's fieldsites spelled S-I-G-H-T-S. Second, we're recruiting. If you've got an idea for a podcast, get in touch with us. Anthropod is always looking for more people to explore anthropological issues, either based on an essay in the journal Cultural Anthropology or from the wider world. We'll work with you from idea to finished episode to get your voice out there. No prior experiences in podcasts is necessary, but you could probably tell from our early episodes. All that's required is an idea and a willingness to learn. Email us today at anthropod at colanth.org, and you could be the mind behind a future episode of Anthropod. We're looking forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, you can find all of the previous podcast episodes at our website, and we encourage you to subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Finally, send us your comments about this and any other episode at colanth.org, by searching for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook, tweeting us at colanth on Twitter, or sending an email to anthropod at colanth.org. I'm Grant. And I'm Bascom. See you next time.